Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. You get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. 1,172,229. That's the total number of deaths that the CDC attributes to COVID-19 since the beginning of the pandemic. And around each death, there's a set of people grieving amidst an environment where that grief is not only their own, but part of a national debate. How will we memorialize this time? Today, we bring you the story of the San Francisco resident who lost her own father and has been trying to build a monument to all the losses. How will we remember? Or maybe we won't. That's all coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're going to talk about how we memorialize COVID this morning. The show was inspired by Chris Collins reporting for 99% Invisible about Kristen Urquiza's fight to create a national memorial that reckons with the scale of loss of these past few years. As you'll hear, it has not been simple or easy, and it even raises the question of whether it's possible these days to come to an agreement about what happened with COVID, let alone what it means. We're joined by Kristen Urquiza, co-founder of Marked by COVID and a San Franciscan. Welcome, Kristen. Thanks for having me. And we're joined by Chris Collin, whose most recent story, Don't Forget to Remember, for the podcast 99% Invisible, inspired the show. Welcome, Chris. Hi. Thank you. Kristen, maybe you can begin by just kind of telling us about your family's experiences with COVID. We had an awful pandemic. We uh, lost my dad early in the pandemic in June of 2020. And then before vaccines were available, four other people in my family died. Um, it was terrifying. And, you know, the majority of these folks were low income um, Latinos who had to go to work, um, didn't have the luxury of staying home um, and also lived in communities um, where there just weren't the type of resources that we had or leadership that we had here in San Francisco, where uh, public health officials really responded quickly to ensure that people had services and supports to stay home or help, you know, not get evicted if they couldn't pay rent. Uh, so it was terrifying. Yeah. And it really did make a difference. Like if you look at the number of people who were killed, say, in, in Arizona, where your father died, versus here, the rates really are different um, pretty substantially. 
Uh, Arizona was the worst place in the world to be, uh, or the country to be if, for COVID. And San Francisco and the Bay Area was one of the best. So my entire pandemic experience, I was living between these two realities where I was seeing public health officials and the governor take things really seriously. Meanwhile, the governor of Arizona, um, former ice cream salesman of uh, Doug Ducey, was saying in May of 2020 that the pandemic was over. And I will <laughs> remind us that Arizona was a critical swing state in the 2020 election. Maricopa County, where my family lived, where I'm from, uh, was one of the critical places that ended up going blue and turning that state blue. So this was a political move mm. by politicians across the country to try to save the economy at the expense of people's lives. And that's what the work is that we're focused on, is making sure that we really get to that fundamental recognition that this was a disaster, that millions of people died and tens of millions of people are still suffering mm -hmm. because of ongoing health consequences from a COVID infection uh, with the disease that we now call long COVID. So that passion and that perspective you tried to express, even in your father's obituary, like how did you begin to conceptualize how you wanted to mark you know, just his death. Well, my partner, Christine, and I, um, you know, when we were going through those days and weeks of, of him being in the hospital, and he had the type of experience where he was turned away from the hospital initially because there just wasn't enough resources. Mm -hmm. He couldn't get a COVID test. So we were sending money to my family to try and be able to, you know, help them just navigate this complicated system. But while we knew this was a tragedy, we also knew it wasn't unique, in particular to... You know, the Latino community here in you know San Francisco, as well as my Latino community in um, in Phoenix. And so when my when the ultimate thing happened, when my dad, who was otherwise a healthy 65 year old, died from covid, it deposited in me the type of rage that moves mountains and. You know, we looked at our our own experience uh, as nonprofit workers. We, you know, work. You know, my partner Christine worked for a number of years for the National Center for Lesbian Rights. She helped. She was part of the team that helped get the Supreme Court case to legalize gay marriage. I've been working on environmental justice campaigns to expand access to clean water and clean air throughout California and the country. We knew that there was a toolkit that we could deploy to help draw more attention to the issue and really put a line in the sand that COVID was and is and remains a really big deal. And the final thing I'll, I'll mention on this too is that, you know, San Francisco has not only led in the beginning of this crisis, we've led in a whole set of different crises. And, you know, we look to our elders in the social justice space, um, in the HIV AIDS movement, and the humanization that those activists through ACT UP and other organizations took to really kind of put those names and faces on the AIDS memorial quilt and other sort of community active um, expressions to really kind of help, you know, grab the national attention and wake us up to the fact that these numbers represented real people mm -hmm. who mattered in our society and who leave behind an incredible amount of loss. Yeah. So did you, you found this organization marked by COVID. Did it just directly come out of that? Or was there some kind of process between, you know, your father's death and, and coming to grieve and then realizing you wanted to mark his death by this uh, this new organization? It was nine days after okay. my dad died that we 
publicly launched Mark by COVID, within two hours of burying him, I was at the state capitol calling on the governor and the president to do more. I really did, you know, channel my own grief through this, um, but also knew that I didn't have the luxury of time to sit back and chill um, because I was seeing the devastation happening and and you know, quite quite frankly, was seeing it happening in a, per- a certain subset of society, black folks, indigenous mm-hmm. folks, low-income folks, other folks of color like myself, and not so much happening in communities where there was, you know, high wealth or, or wider. And so this sort of, you know, deep commitment that I have to living in a society that, you know, your future isn't dependent upon your zip code. I, I really had to have this, you know, we had this moment of, if not us, who, if not now, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When and so that's why, as I was choosing what my dad would wear when we buried him, we mm-hmm. were also buying the domain name for Mark by COVID. Mm-hmm. We were thinking about how we would write the obituary in a way so that it would tell the truth about who he was and how he died and how mm-hmm. that was preventable. Mm-hmm. When did the idea that you would advocate for a national memorial come into play? Um, It really, you know, we started commemoration and and memorialization from that very first act. Mm I um, asked people in my dad's obituary to come out to the state capitol and add photos and remembrances of of loved ones. Um, And it really was in the days and weeks that kind of followed um, that initial action that I because I was doing tons of of media interviews, started Mm -hmm. to connect with other families. And Mm -hmm. one of the things that just was really, you know, apparent from day one was just the universality of how Mm -hmm. everyone um, felt like what I was saying spoke directly to their experience and that they wanted to make sure that their loved one's deaths, those preventable deaths, were not in vain. Mm -hmm. And that a commemorative sort of agenda of having not just a permanent memorial, but also a permanent COVID Memorial Day, Mm -hmm. uh, which our community observes on the first Monday of March every year, uh, was essential to not only honoring the lives of who we lost, but also to pull together, again, the imagination and the courage of folks less impacted to demand better of ourselves, of Mm -hmm. one another and our government, to make sure that we're in a better position the next time some sort of tragedy or disaster slow or fast hits our shores. Mm -hmm. And that might not be COVID, but we know here in the Bay Area that we're susceptible to wildfires. We're susceptible to flooding. And we're also susceptible to a ton of other things that, you know, we need to be in strong positions to ensure that the most vulnerable amongst us have what they need to weather those storms. We're talking about how to memorialize the COVID-19 pandemic with Kristen Urquiza, co-founder of Marked by COVID, which is a community-led movement for pandemic justice and remembrance. She's the daughter of Mark Urquiza, who died from COVID on June 30th, 2020 in Arizona. Also joined by Chris Collin, Bay Area-based journalist. His recent story, Don't Forget to Remember, appeared on the podcast 99% Invisible and inspired the show. How do you think our nation should memorialize the COVID-19 pandemic? Like, what should that... COVID-19 memorial say, or how should it work? You can email forum at kqed.org, or you can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Chris, as you started to report on Kristen's experience and her story, what did you learn about the role that memorials kind of generally play? 
Um, well, you know, there's a million remarkable things about Kristen and the work she does. But I also want to say she's also just a regular person. She's just a <laughs> just an ordinary person. And it blew me away that a regular person was doing this work in the first place. Mm. I didn't know that that's how memorials came into existence. You know, mm. if I, if there's a pothole in my street, I know who to call. But if a million plus people die and our country gets turned inside out, essentially, there's no 311 for that. Mm. So, so, you know, for me, the story started with the realization that that Kristen was going to be the Department of Memorialization. Yeah. As for what memorials do, boy, I mean, around the time I started to hear about Kristen's work, I remember I was walking one day in Tompkins Square Park in New York, and I came across a fountain, like this sort of faded old fountain over a century old, and it was a memorial to the um, General Slocum uh uh, fairy tragedy. Hmm. So in 1904, this horrific uh, accident happened on a ferry in New York mm-hmm. City. Over a thousand people died. This was the biggest disaster in New York until 9-11. I had never heard of it, yeah. I'm embarrassed to say. Mm-hmm. And it re- sort of dawned on me in that moment, if I hadn't come across this memorial, I wouldn't know about it. And the memorial told me that it existed, that it had happened, and it started to sort of inform how I would feel about it. Mm-hmm. And I realized in that moment, that's going to happen with the COVID pandemic one day. There's but somehow, we'll, we'll remember it somehow, right? And there's got to be uh, a sense of, there, there's got to be a, a place to actually contest and make sense of what that, of how we'll remember, right? Yeah. Well, and also there's going to be people who don't know about it, you know, some number of generations from now. Right. And it's up to Kristen and the rest of Mark by COVID to tell those people what 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 happened and what it meant. And I, I think it's like incredibly historically fascinating and important what she's doing for that reason we're going to talk more about it when we come back from the break we're talking about how to memorialize the COVID-19 pandemic with Bay Area journalist Chris Collin story don't forget to remember appeared on the podcast 99% Invisible the subject of that story is Kristen Urquiza co-founder of Marked by COVID which is a community-led movement for pandemic justice and remembrance We'd love to hear from you. I mean, how do you think our nation should memorialize the pandemic? You can email forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about how we're going to remember the COVID-19 pandemic, how we should memorialize it. Joined by Kristen Urquiza, co-founder of Marked by COVID, a community-led movement for pandemic justice and remembrance, as well as Chris Collin, who covered this uh, Marked by COVID and Kristen's story for 99% Invisible in an episode called Don't Forget to Remember. You know, Chris, I as I listened to the 99PI uh, episode, I started to think about that I'd never seen a memorial to the victims of the Spanish flu pandemic. Uh, 1918 killed 50 million people. And I'd never even thought about the fact that I hadn't seen that, right? Um, to, what do we know about that, how we memorialize previous pandemics or, or previous public health crises? Yeah, well, if you want to uh, see a memorial to the Spanish flu, you have to go to this little town called Barrie in Vermont. And there's a little bench that a husband and wife, a uh, couple of restaurateurs had built just a few years ago. That's it in this country. And, uh, you know, just for comparison, we have, you know, the Vietnam Wall that, that, mm-hmm. uh, and countless other Vietnam memorials that are, are wonderful and beautiful. That, that's a war that killed about 58,000 Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a really fascinating um, discrepancy in how we remember different tragedies in this country. Mm. Um, you know, one thing that came out in in spending time with Marked by COVID and, and learning about memory studies and how we, mm. how we like think about... Like the academic them. field of memory studies. Sorry, yes, yeah. the academic yeah, field yeah. of memory studies. Um, you know, COVID, unlike 9-11, unlike certain wars, other things that we see memorialized all over the place, COVID was narratively inconvenient. Mm. There were no beaches being stormed. There were no towers falling. There were not these searing visuals um, that help us really sort of Mm. rally around a a memorial. Yeah. It's interesting, Kristen. I mean, there were heroes, though, right? I mean, there were essential workers. There were nurses. There were people doing, you know, relief work. There were people expanding food banks. But they're not the kind of heroes that, generally speaking, get memorialized for doing anything, right? Um, Yeah. The pandemic... uh, had so many everyday normal people heroes. And I think that's something that we really want individuals to feel kind of proud of the sacrifices uh, that they made. And I choose to not think about sort of the uh, debates that we've been having about the pandemic over the last couple of years, but those first couple of weeks where we all sort of chipped in to do what we could to keep one another safe. And we did that because we cared. And that demonstrates the incredible potential that we have when we come together to to do uh, the right thing. And, you know, I often wondered over the course of 2020, 2021 and beyond, how would my COVID experience have been different had we talked about the Spanish flu for more than one sentence in my history book. Mm. And that was another driver to really stop what we know happens and hard, about hard times in our country. We are constantly challenging uh, revisionist history, whether it's you know the notion that Columbus discovered America, erasing countless generations of Native people, to um, you know what we saw in 2016, and even continuing to today, these memory wars where people are taking down Confederate uh, statues and flags, doing the right thing to give a more nuanced viewpoint of our history and the history of people. And so, for for us at Mark by Coven and sort of folks you know out there. Um, you know, continuing and committing to to 
sort of the, the, the nexus of harm is the only way in which we are really going to uh, be prepared to really uh, make sure that the next time this happens, we are starting off, you know, not flat footed. You know, it's interesting in those early days, I, I thought a lot about um, a Stanford historian named Richard White, uh, who wrote about kind of how cities came to provide like common infrastructure in the late 19th century. And part of what he said was that the, the metaphor that developed was basically the ship of state, like, you know, it either sails or sinks as a whole. And so you needed to cover everybody with kind of the same sort of infrastructure. And that idea really informs a lot of the way that people think about the World War II home front, which I thought was kind of like the best, the closest analog to what we experienced in the pandemic. And yet we don't have that sense that everyone pulled together, particularly as the pandemic wore on. Right. And I think one of the things that makes your task really complicated, Kristen, <laughs> is that the pandemic has been many different things. Right. Like it, it began with the kind of early part where I did feel like a lot of people pulled together and then experiences have really diverged and diverged and diverged. And the informational wars around it have really diverged. Um, Chris, as you reported out what other people were thinking about a memorial, did you find that there were areas of convergence or did you find, you know, particularly, say, in conservative circles, that there's a wild divergence of, of opinion on how we should memorialize what's happened? Uh, the second one. <laughs> there was a wild divergence. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and when I went in thinking, oh, my God, how how is marked by COVID ever going to cohere a national memory when everyone feels we can't even agree that it happened in the first place? I mean, there's mm -hmm. people out there saying it's not real. And so, I, of course, I thought a lot in the beginning about those people who are sort of COVID deniers in one, in one way or another. But, but more surprising to me was what was happening to the rest of us who maybe had been more um, engaged by it uh, on the left, I'm going to say. It was, mm -hmm. it was, you know, a political division. Myself included, you know, over the last few years, I think a lot of people have felt this sort of um, COVID fatigue set in. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of ways, that was more divisive and, and problematic for a memorialization effort than the people saying it's not real mm. or, or, you know, having that position on it. Yeah. Kristen, what do you think? I mean, it, it, what I've seen is that when somebody sits down and, and talks to my friend Lucy, who was a poll worker on Super Tuesday in 2020 in Southern California and Los Angeles, and here's her story about how she was showing up to do her patriotic duty, contracted COVID, and brought it back to her family, in which every single person in her household died. Oh. She was the only survivor. She was isolated for months. And when people hear Lucy's story, it just completely washes away any sort of other sort of these other details. And we really kind of find the humanity in one another, despite our our political differences. And we've really seen that connecting around grief and loss, which is a universal experience, mm -hmm. that we're able to build incredible bridges across divides. And, you know, my dad, he was a a casualty to the war on science. And this memorial will ensure that he is not, a, his legacy is not a casualty to the war on memory. Mm. I mean, you, we kind of are considering the memorial as this kind of cognitive, emotional infrastructure. How does it actually 
get built, Kristen? Like you've had to go out to funders. You've had to have, you know, meetings with governments. Like what is the actual process by which you would build something like this? (laughs) That's a great question. Um, It's long. It's hard. It's um, a whole lot of things. And I think, you know, some of the things that we discuss in the podcast is that Grassroots groups like Marked by COVID are, assist- are at a systematic disadvantage, um, and the pandemic itself did not make it any easier. So, you know, I am at high risk for um, severe COVID because I have asthma. Um, so I wasn't traveling for a number of years until I was able to kind of be able to figure out how to do that. Um, as safely as possible. So it wasn't like I was able to go to benefits or meet directly mm-hmm. with funders. Mm-hmm. Like this work is being done mostly over, um, you know, mm-hmm. the internet and Zoom. But we're also, you know, you know, we don't, you know, we didn't necessarily come in with a five-year strategic plan. And a lot of <laughs> philanthropists <laughs> want to make sure that that mm-hmm. that is what, mm-hmm. um, you know, you you're bringing to the table. So whether it's a great organization like the Mellon Foundation, which announced, you know, in 2020 that they were going to um, do this, uh, do a monuments project that focused on kind of more black and brown stories, but announced that with a by invitation only um, mm. sort of, you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, wraparound that exists too here and for foundations like the San Francisco Foundation. So it's mm. really about who you know, networking, and then mm. never, you know, knocking on every single door that you can to find folks who are sympathetic to the cause and connecting with them and, you know, asking for them to kind of help you move the project forward piece by piece. Meanwhile, you know, we have never stopped talking to folks who are going through long COVID right now, who are disabled or are at high risk that, you know, really very much know that COVID is still not over. Like we're currently in at a time where we have elevated COVID in our wastewater systems and we're not doing the things that we need to do to make sure that those folks can access um, you know, healthcare facilities without getting, you know, mm-hmm. COVID infection on top of whatever else they're there for. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it is a constant sort of navigation of both the bureaucracy that comes with sort of, you know, privilege and access in this country, as well as continuing to keep the community knowing that, you know, there are fighters out there mm-hmm. that are trying our best to push this boulder uphill. Mm-hmm. We're talking about how we'll memorialize the COVID-19 pandemic with Kristen Urquiza, co-founder of Marked by COVID, community-led movement for pandemic justice and remembrance, trying to get a memorial built for uh, at the kind of scale of the loss of COVID. And Chris Collin, Bay Area journalist uh, who covered Kristen's work for 99% Invisible in an episode called Don't Forget to Remember. We'd love to hear from you. How do you think our nation should memorialize the COVID-19 pandemic and its losses? You can email forum at kqed.org or you can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. Let's bring in our caller here, Larry in Oakland. Welcome, Larry. Hi, um, Alexis, can you hear me? Yeah, sure can, Larry. Go ahead. Great. Uh, So first of all, thank you so much for this show, and um, congratulations. You've been doing a phenomenal job with uh, with Forum. Uh, And I want to give a shout-out to Kristen, uh, because she was actually one of my students at UC Berkeley, um, and I will say one of my best students. Um, But what I wanted to share is that um, a friend and college classmate of mine uh, was on one of the airplanes that um, mm. went into the World Trade Towers in uh, 9-11. And um, whenever any of us, friends, cl- classmates, 
visit um, New York City, we go to the 9-11 memorial and take a picture of his name in the stone that's there by the fountain. And it is so powerful to have that Mm. as a place of remembrance and as something that we can share with each other to honor him. Um, You know, he had two very small girls who are now in college and um, it's um, Mm. such a tragedy, but it it really is so powerful. So we need something like that um, for, for COVID. Larry, I really appreciate that perspective. I mean, just the ability of Memorial to kind of give a focal point for your grief or the kind of the center of this kind of network of, of grieving. And it's interesting, though, because 9-11, and Chris, I'm going to throw this one to you. It, it, at least from my perspective, there was never any doubt, it seemed, that there would be a 9-11 memorial um, probably at the site. But, like, they were, we were clearly going to memorialize 9-11. Why is it so different? You know, I mean, there's a lot of different components. But what do you think are the like, kind of salient uh, differences in why that, the, the two memorialization processes feel immediately so different? Great question. Um, and thank you, Larry. It was great to hear your voice. Um, 9-11, you know, it was, you were absolutely right. It was, it, we were going to memorialize that as the buildings were still burning. People were talking about how we were going to memorialize that. And, you know, I think part of what really drove that was the, you know, we had a universal experience. As Chris said, there was a searing visual. We can all who are alive then think back to seeing the Twin Towers and how we felt shook. Our security shook. The confusion shook. I mean, we felt all those feelings during COVID, too, but we didn't have those visuals. And the other piece is leadership. Leadership has been sorely lacking on this from the Trump administration to, sadly, the Biden administration. And once they had a COVID track record as well, became less and less interested in thinking about commemoration because they made mistakes Uh, too. And so those factors play into Mm. sort of this, you know, malaise that we have that's driving this cognitive dissonance, that's driving this forgetting. But let me go back to 9-11 and remind us that we completely transformed our government and our lives Mm. as a result of those attacks and the commitment to commemorate, to keep it on the forefront of our minds, not only has provided ongoing healing to the nearly 3,000 family members, the families of the nearly 3,000 people who died that day, but also created a new department of, you know, the government. We're still taking off our shoes at the airport. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, those are all in the name of public safety. And we just learned over the course of the last three years that there's a lot of things that we need to do differently. And if we do not remember what's at stake, if we do not remember those faces and those names and those stories of the individuals we lost, I am afraid that we are going to be worse off. Yeah. You know, it's fascinating, too, because there there's a tie in between like just the the deeply pragmatic elements of like preventing infection from spreading and our unwillingness to memorialize COVID and really reckon with the scale of the loss. For example, we know that if we improved indoor air quality uh, in schools and in other kinds of facilities where vulnerable people might be, that would like cut down on infection like it would be just like a like a widespread you know change would be like putting metal detectors in in the different places you know after 9-11 but it would instead have the effect of improving health instead of doing security theater you know like there actually are things that could come out of this um and yet it it has that hasn't happened at all 
Um, and, and Chris, I mean, it kind of goes to the, your point earlier of, of kind of everybody wanting to just kind of forget that it happened, push off from that that time. Um, what do, what do you make of that? You know, is that just like the like the I don't know. It was a hard time for everyone along many different dimensions, and so we just kind of you know, it's like after someone gives birth, they're like, oh yeah, there that 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 sucked. Let's uh, let's not talk about the pain of this. You know. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a weird schism going on in all of us, maybe. Um, we talked about COVID nonstop for a long time. We talked about the, our fear of, of getting it, a fear of dying from it all the time. And yet, I also think we haven't quite processed it at some level. It, it's hard. It doesn't even, um, it, it feels weird to say that because, because of how much we've talked about it. But I feel like, you know, what I've seen again and again talking to folks over the last year or yeah. so is that there is this sort of willful amnesia this this resistance to really thinking about it to really thinking about the people that were lost um and then this is where the sort of privilege component comes in that Kristen um has been on top of from the beginning the way we talk about it when we do talk about it in privileged circles there's a certain um narrative that's already starting to sort of gel at the expense of, of other stories. Um, it was that time when everything was so crazy. It was that time when we missed seeing our friends, when it was hard to uh, entertain mm. our kids during the day. Um, we got sick of Zooms. You know, that's yeah. that's often the way you hear people talk about it now in certain circles. And, uh, you know, there was it's a not whole- not what's other... going on in the meatpacking plants. Yeah, <laughs> Exactly, right. yeah. yeah. And yeah. I think it's interesting that we, we are resistant to really uh, feeling that and talking yeah. about that. I'm well, on the meatpacking th- piece, there were uh, Tyson employees in the Midwest were betting on who was going to get sick and who was going to die, while the CEO of Tyson was heavily lobbying the the administration at the time to completely change the laws to so that they wouldn't shut down. Mm-hmm. Like we need to remember that. But on the point that you just raised about, like, oh, when we in, when we improve indoor air quality, we do so much good. I mean, that that's been a studied phenomena. It's called the curb cut effect. Mm-hmm. Um, professor of mine at, at UC Berkeley, Angela Glover Blackwell at Policy Link, talks extensively about how whenever we put curb cuts in the sidewalk, it wasn't just helpful for folks with uh, limited uh, with disabilities, limited mobility. It helped mothers with strollers and people mm-hmm. coming in and bringing in uh, groceries um, on carts. And so we can benefit from being able to apply that principle to indoor air quality, which will not only address COVID, but so many other respiratory illnesses that our kids are facing year after year. Yeah. We're talking about how to memorialize the COVID-19 pandemic with Kristen Urquiza, co-founder of Marked by COVID, and Chris Collin, Bay Area journalist. Stay with us. We'll be back right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about how to memorialize the COVID-19 pandemic. Joined by Chris Collin, Bay Area journalist, uh, has an episode of the podcast, 99% Invisible, called Don't Forget to Remember, which documents the work of our other guest, Kristen Urquiza, who's co-founder of Marked by COVID, a community-led movement for pandemic justice and remembrance, daughter of Mark Urquiza, who died from COVID on June 30th, 2020. We are going to get to some more calls and comments in this part of the hour. You know, how do you think our nation should memorialize the COVID-19 pandemic? Have you encountered another memorial that moved you or changed your understanding of history that you think, you know, some of that understanding could be brought uh, to COVID? You can email us, forum at kqed.org. You can find us on our social channels, or KQED Forum, or you can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. Let's go to Peter in Berkeley. Welcome. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Um, you know, first off, um, to the guest, you know, I'm sorry uh, for your loss. Um, I did want to make just really kind of an observation that it seems that we memorialize acts of violence. Um, And when I think of memorials in our country, they're pretty much all about acts of violence, whereas we avoid memorializing societal failings. So if we think about, you know, the number of people who are killed in, um, you know, preventable diseases, the number of people who die on our streets, um, the number of children who die of, you know, hunger and malnutrition. Um, And even if it's a societal failing that kind of borders those things, for instance, the number of people who die of gun violence, Mm -hmm. We avoid the topic altogether. So I wonder whether there's a there's an issue there. Mm. Kristen, thought about this, I'm sure. Yeah, no, thank you for bringing this up, and and I I really like the way that you frame this. We we um you know we memorialize acts of violence, and I would argue that COVID was an act of violence. It is, it's a different type of violence. Um, it's the violence of you know the legacy of colonialism and slavery, and that you know. Black and other people of color were at a systemic disadvantage because of wealth and health stripped for them um, for generations. Um, but it's also an a, you know active of of violence of, of current you know government systems mm. that turned in many places not here in the Bay Area but in other places turned a blind eye to the needs of communities and the, and the, their most vulnerable. And to give you just a little bit of a global context, uh, COVID in its first three years accounted for twenty percent of global deaths, yet was four percent of the global population. Uh, so this is not, you know, this is a USA problem. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what we're working to do is draw that line in the sand that COVID was a disaster. It was a humanitarian crisis and a mass disabling event. And I think once we start to turn our frame, the, the frame of the, the conversation to this was a different type of slow violence, a different type of violence, a type of slower violence, mm-hmm. a type of historical violence, then I think, you know, especially in places in the Bay Area where we really care about these issues and are trying to do the work to make it, you know, better for all peoples, I think that then is sort of the the springboard that we need. Yeah. I, I'm just going to add something. I, I think that was a really good good point that came up in the call. You know, I think we see, that in our, see this in our own individual lives. When something bad happens, 
it's a lot easier to get our arms around it emotionally when we can point to an external mm-hmm. cause, when we can blame someone else rather than ourselves. So I, I, I see that happening here too. I, I, I totally agree with Kristen that this was an act of violence. And I think it's hard for people to accept that we did this to ourselves at some level as a society. Mm. Um, we have some ideas coming in for memorials. Um, Marsha writes in to say, you know, one idea is to have a symbol for a death from COVID, just as one can choose to mark a headstone of a loved one who was in the military. A unitary symbol could be a reminder of those we have lost over time in many areas of the country uh, and the world. Uh, Elizabeth writes in to say, every community lost loved ones, but particularly people in black and brown communities. In Vancouver, Washington, two nonprofits joined forces with the city to plant a memorial of trees for those from the black community who had died. Imagine the impact of planting over a million trees and memorial forests in, in every community. And Colin writes, memorials also serve as a warning for future generations. In Japan, tsunami stones mark the place where the tsunami waves reached, a warning to future generations not to build homes below that spot. I think memorializing the victims and heroes is important. We also must ask what we learned and what we want future generations to heed. I thought maybe, you know, it's kind of fascinating because there's really three different conceptions of memorials there. You know, one is kind of, okay, we're going to we're going to make this as dispersed as possible. It's they're going to go all the way across, you know, in every cemetery there would be some stones like that. And another, it's like let's create a new living being, you know, to mark the the loss that has happened, this this kind of tree. And the other is kind of like let's mark the infrastructure of the city with um with what we needed to to know, you know, um, which would be slightly more complicated for COVID, but maybe someone can imagine that. As you've tried to put together a memorial, how have you incorporated kind of these different facets? And I'm sure there's other beyond those. Those are just the ones our listeners wrote in with. Um, how have you thought about how to weave together those different components? I love all of these ideas that folks are bringing to the table. And what we did to come up with a design concept for our memorial is that we did over 200 focus groups with uh, hundreds and then thousands of people who had lost loved ones to COVID to really make sure that we were uh, making a memorial that would speak to them. Um, and then we also did and talked to many, many, many folks living with long COVID to also kind of get an, a better idea of what what they wanted as well. And I think, you know, what, you know, the callers are, and writers are, are, are pointing to is our, you know, there needs to be a place. There needs to be places where we can come to and gather so that we can reflect but these also need to be tools and instruments for teaching um, so that we can be able to uh, have lessons learned. Uh, one of the sort of places I think about as a place that has done a really incredible job on commemoration is in Germany, in Berlin. Mm-hmm. You can't you know, walk 10 feet without seeing some sort of remembrance to the Holocaust. It is mm-hmm. embedded within the society. Now, uh, what I do know is that it took about 30 years for Germany to start to reconcile with mm-hmm. its history. I don't think we have 30 years to wait um, to be able to start to look back at what happened uh, to COVID because we know that, you know, these systems uh, that failed, um, you know, we're going to are going to fail um, when something else happens between now and then. Yeah. Um, there's another sort of complexity in building a memorial, which is, of course, that other folks out there, other organizations, other individuals, you know, people have their own ideas of what a memorial could look like or what memorialization could look like. So how have you thought of Marked by COVID? You know, 
amidst this set of institutions that are all or, you know, or maybe not institutions might be a little strong, but at least this, you know, amidst a, a sea of other people who might have their own ideas or their own organizations working towards memorialization. So what's great about Mark by COVID is that we are on a quest to identify every single person who lost their life from COVID. That's over a million individuals. And our sort of uh, our offer to COVID commemoration is not only the political and groundswell of support, but it's also the individual remembrances that can personalize each one of these sites. We work with community groups to make sure that the local memorial fits the local context because the people there are going to know exactly what they need in order to sort of process what their individual community went through. So while COVID was universal, the individual experience was really Mm -hmm. different. Mm -hmm. And so that sort of community partnership between us as a national group of, of COVID bereaved individuals, working with local artists and then with local governments really creates it's this trifecta of, of commemorative spots that sort of rise to the occasion, both in scope, but then also connects all these memorials mm. together. So you could imagine our our memorial, as we talked about in the podcast, is uh, we've had a great partnership with Snapchat that created this augmented reality experience that really has space for everyone. So mm. you can imagine being in that memorial park where there's all of these trees and then there's a marker mm. where you pull out your phone and you're able to experience mm-hmm. a name, a story, a person mm-hmm. who was lost brings you to sort of the core of what we lost and really helps connect you um, with your own feelings, giving you permission to be angry mm. about that loss, mm. permission to um you know, ask for better of our elected officials. Yeah. Um, Todd writes in to say, you know, maybe the memorial should be more personal, placed in neighborhoods and yards and office buildings, like you're saying. Maybe this would symbolize how COVID moved among us. It wasn't one thing that happened in one place. And I I, I did want to kind of bounce off of that to ask you that, uh, you know, one of the things that makes memorializing COVID so difficult, and and some of your answers have, have really indicated this, you know, it's not just that people lost individual loved ones, although obviously there's so much of that and so many unprocessed feelings, like you were saying, Chris. But it's also that so many ideas about the way that our society would or should or did work were kind of like shattered and made to seem like they were just, you know, fictions. Like, um, you know, we've done so many shows uh, over the months about things where you go back and you look at that pandemic period and it broke something like kids going to school. You know, there's now like chronic absenteeism just like jumped up and it's now at a totally higher and worse level than it was before the pandemic across all kinds of communities. Um, You know, we saw it in levels of violence. We've seen it like just there's there's so many you can look almost anywhere and see that like step change to a future that's like a little to a lot worse. So how do we commemorate that societal pulling apart or that, you know, societal fabric tearing in addition to the individual loss that we've had. I think that's why we're also calling for a permanent public national COVID memorial on the mall, someplace that it has the same gravitas as uh, the Lincoln Memorial or the Jefferson Memorial, these 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 places that people come to to really reflect upon our leaders. And what you're talking about is like is absolutely true. COVID was a stress test 
on every single system in society and confronted this idea of American exceptionalism. Mm -hmm. And so those are other forces that we are fighting um, in this. And I think that, you know, we can um, I want to have those conversations with more and more people about what, you know, these these spaces look like, because ultimately that reaches that goal of putting that line in the sand that this was unprecedented. Remember that? We used to talk about that all of the time. Uh, and that a lot of bad stuff happened. And so we see commemoration and remembrance as the curb cut in this situation. If we can really focus on the fact that this was a disaster with incredible consequences, it makes room for every other experience um, to really shape um, the public memory and discourse. But I think more, more importantly, as another um, caller said, pass on the learnings to, to future generations mm -hmm. so that you know, nurses and doctors don't have to go to work without proper PPE mm -hmm. so that elderly folks in nursing homes aren't, you know, dying disproportionately because they don't have the proper care and resources to keep those folks safe. Mm -hmm. Can I just say something? Yeah. About, I mean, I just think it's worth pausing in moments like this. Whenever I'm chatting with Kristen about this, I just think it's it's worth noting how wild it is that she has to say this. I mean, we all knew this at one point in the pandemic. This was all we were thinking about is is what broke and what needs to change. And I think it's really amazing um, that she has to sort of fight to rem remind us of this. And I think that's, that's an interesting component of this memorial is, mm -hmm. you know, I think historically a memorial was more of a sort of spiritual tableau. It was where you would go to sort of process your grief and in some ways, of course, this is that too. But it's also, it's a it's a basic reminder that this thing happened. Mm -hmm. It's a sticky note for society. Like, don't forget this huge, huge thing mm -hmm. did I mean, happen. Think about the AIDS memorial quilt, which started mm -hmm. here in San Francisco. It was a place for people to come and work together on those individual panels. And you know, eventually, we have the memorial grove here, which served as has served as a place for me to go to and process some of my feelings around my dad. But also think about the incredible advancements in LGBTQ rights that have started as a result of that community having that space and time to be able to really reckon with and kind of shake ourselves out of this like you know, malaise, that bad stuff are happening to people that we love as well as ourselves. I mean, some of the reason I think, and this is not this is not to excuse myself or other people, but I think part of the issue was that some of the the responses that had to be taken to protect people's health also had their own unintended negative consequences. And so when you saw the city falling apart at the seams, in part because of the public health measures that were taken, I think people started to – the calculus got more complicated. It wasn't as simple as it was in the early months for people. And I think there's one perspective that says, ah, and, you know, one of our listeners even says, you know, the elites just wanted us to get back to normal. And I totally understand that that's a perspective. But it wasn't just elite people who wanted to get back to normal. It was many, many people wanted life – in the streets to return they want their businesses were failing they lost their jobs they like i th i think there it's it's complicated to remember the public health measures and to remember the pulling together and all of the different things because we know it, and i think it's fair to say that a lot of those measures did in fact negatively impact many people in other ways even whose health wasn't impacted 
Right. So, I mean, how do we, how do we hold both? I mean, I think those are those things are just kind of independent truths to hold in our head, you know? Absolutely. And that's like the challenge about public health is like when it works, it's like you don't see it. It's like we did not have refrigerator trucks here in San Francisco with bodies overflowing. And I think that the sacrifices that we made here in the city had unintended consequences, but ultimately prevented unnecessary deaths. And I think that, you know, that is an important thing that we should all feel really proud of as we are still in this recovery phase. And I would argue, too, that, you know, we're not done with the recovery. There are still, you know, thousands of people in the city living with long COVID who have like no solution. There's people right now who owe rent and the city is not actually helping them, even though they're protected from eviction. So it's like passing the buck down to like landlords and tenants to sue one another like there are all these additional consequences that we're continuing to see and i think that if we don't go take a step back and look at the bigger picture of like what we accomplished and be mm-hmm. feel ex- you know mm-hmm. proud of that we're not going to be in a position to really address the root issue here yeah because i mean part of the argument um in through all of this has been basically well there's not really anything we can do Right, that that there's the the virus is going to run its course, but then you take a step back, you look at the numbers by different countries and different states, and you look at the different response measures that were taken, and like it was pretty different, you know, really, really quite different. I think it's to your point, it's just really worth holding on to that part of the of the memory. Um, and that came from the top, right? So summer of 2021, the like administration pushed forward the like vax and relax um, narrative when, you know, we knew that at that time that, you know, while vaccinations helped, they didn't necessarily, you know, stop the spread of the disease. And so I, I think that, you know, what we navigated through throughout the entire course of, of the pandemic was was not was kind of universal and, and not always getting the truth from the folks in charge. And what we want in this commemorative memorial mm-hmm. of the people that we lost is a stark reminder of what's at stake. Yeah. I just want to uh, get to one last listener comment. Just listener writes, you know, we laid our parents to rest March 23rd, 2021, as the funeral homes were full busy with other COVID-related services. It took over a year to get their headstone because of the same COVID-related issues. Just on a single day, I don't think of them. My iPhone's wallpaper holds their image. They are not forgotten. Well, we've been talking about how to memorialize the COVID-19 pandemic, its losses, its griefs. We've been joined by Kristen Urquiza, co-founder of Marked by COVID, a community-led movement for pandemic justice and remembrance, daughter of Mark Urquiza, who died from COVID on June 30th, 2020. Thanks for joining us, Kristen. Thanks for having me. Also been joined by Chris Collin. If you want to hear more about Kristen's story and Marked by COVID, you can listen to the episode he made of the podcast, 99% Invisible. It's called Don't Forget to Remember. Thanks for joining us, Chris. Thanks, Alexis. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. 
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.